the education team for Jackson Family Wines proudly brings you these podcasts for your listening enjoyment. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Bud Break podcast series. My name is Nick Hetzel and I am pleased to be joined today with uh, winemaker and general manager of Copan Winery, Ryan Zapolfis. Ryan, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing good, Nick. How are you? Good. Doing great. Yeah, thanks for your time. You. Of course. I think let's, let's kind of dive in. I mean, I know we've been working with your wines for quite a while now, but maybe for everyone out there, just give like a an overall ethos in terms of, you know, what Copan is, what your winemaking philosophies are, and how you apply those to to every wine across the board, not necessarily just some specific wines. Yeah, I think uh, the main thing with Copan is uh, less is more approach. I think ultimately I want all of our wines to reflect uh, a place, grape varietal, unless it happens to be a blend. You know, every wine should be, you know, peering into the vineyard, the location. And we achieve that in the winery by not getting in the way. So, you know, we don't claim to be natural winemakers, but we check most of those boxes in the vineyard, uh, elevating our farming more and more every year, more of a thoughtful approach in farming. Uh, It's not fully defined, but a lot of organic practices happening. We have some sites that are certified organic. We have some sites that are kind of being farmed in more of a regenerative mindset. Ultimately, growing grapes in a way that they coexist with nature and less of growing a commodity that is feeds the product we're making. So it's really just improving our mindset just every year, doing more better things and less worse things in the vineyards. In the winery, we try not to get, out, get in the way. So fermentations are not inoculated with commercial yeast very rarely. Try not to use a lot of new barrels to like... Uh, you know, stylize or steer the the style of a, a wine. Um, so just being careful of the use of that. Uh, most of the wines go through a natural malolactic fermentation. So not a lot of inputs. We avoid that. More and more, we're moving towards not filtering our wines. So, you know, the goal is to not add things and not take things away, in short. I've noticed um, maybe it's the new release of the rosé. You're actually listing ingredients on the back of the label. What was the inspiration for that? Well, you know, I, I might be a buffoon right now. Maybe I'll, I'll be regarded as a genius when I die. But um, I've always respected uh, brands like Ridge just being fully transparent. I think for me, the, the biggest thing is really to show that Copan wines are pretty damn pure. I think sometimes... With the natural wine movement, there's a lot of accusatory language that's, if you're not in a natural camp, that automatically you're adding mega purple and you're adding oak syrup. You're adding all these things that you could add. And in most cases, I, I just want to defend myself saying, you know what, perfect Copan wine has no ingredients other than grapes and some SO2 as a preservative. Making wines during heat spikes in uh, global warming, uh, we tend to lose a little bit of acidity. So yeah, we have to maybe restore the balance of pH by adding tartaric acid back to to bring a balance in the wine. Ultimately, I want to make a wine that's delicious. So uh, restoring that balance of pH and acidity by adding a naturally occurring substance back is kind of our biggest crime. Beyond that, we don't add commercial yeasts. Um, 
and yeah, the wines are pretty pure. And for me, ultimately, it, I want to open up the conversation and confront it with the consumers. I think uh, a lot of wine consumers are intimidated by wine because they don't know anything about it and they don't know how to speak about it. For me, maybe saying what's in it, when we look at our labels in the store and we buy things, maybe they'll say, well, what is tartaric acid? Well, let's ask the winemaker and I will tell you why. And they can kind of like realize that certain things are, are not a big deal. A perfect piece of steak may have a little bit of salt on it, but you don't fault the chef for putting the salt on it. And we don't want to add things as, as part of a recipe, but we ultimately want to make the most balanced wine. And I guess I just want to normalize the fact that, you know, wine isn't holier than thou. Um, it's still made, <laughs> you know, and, and that's okay, right? That's a great thing. Yeah, absolutely. So speaking, yeah, I, I kind of like you touched on, you know, warm vintages. And, and I think, you know, we all know your wines as, you know, as you just described them as pure, we've always seen them as being maybe a little bit lower alcohol than the norm, you know, of your neighbors and where you're growing fruit. When you get heat spikes, like I know last summer there were some pretty crazy ones. How do you confront that in the vineyard? Do you, do you just force yourself to pick earlier or do you just realize we're going to make a little bit riper style this vintage? Yeah, I mean, every year is a little bit different. It depends on when the heat spike's happening. So, mm -hmm. for instance, in Vintage 22, the heat spike happened. It really didn't affect, say, our Grenache, our Cab Franc, our Syrahs. Those, those grapes are later ripening. So, really, they were kind of in that early stage where they're gaining sugar. They're not um, as vulnerable. Um, but we'll say, for instance, Pinot Noir, very thin skin, very close to the finish line on ripeness. They're already starting to soften up that's where you might go into panic mode and say, yeah, let's grab some stuff early. Let's let's hang a little bit through the heat to try to like have a mix of styles in case sure. the stuff sure. you hang a little bit lighter is too ripe. Uh, you maybe grab some stuff on the front end, but mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's just like game time decision on a lot of this stuff, you know, and just ultimately making the best decision with the information you have at the time. But I I most likely would caution on picking before the heat or during right at the beginning of the heat as opposed to letting it hang. Right. Yeah. Cause if you if you let it hang, you're basically all in, you know. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. especially uh in 2022, uh very low yield. So the ripening escalation is super fast. And there's not a lot of fruit on the vines started to show up pretty fast if you didn't get it off the vines. So and do you typically pick for ripeness or are you picking by acid? I know like in the Willamette Valley, a lot of the producers there are, are picking more for, for acid than they are what the bricks actually are. Where are you at with that program? So for me, picking, you know, I, I think of bricks as kind of a, a guideline, you know. Mm -hmm. I know that 22 bricks in general is a good, good number to shoot for. Pinot and Chardonnay get away with a little more on you know, the Cab Franc or the Grenache. But really, it's ultimately, it comes down to tasting and physiological ripeness. So for me, it's key to spend a lot of time in the vineyards leading up to the pick, uh, checking these blocks every day, every other day, as you get close to deciding when to pick is really key. Um, trying to get the pick scheduled exactly when it's ripe instead of waiting for when the grapes are ripe and then calling the pick, because then you have more time on the vine as you mobilize a crew and whatnot. So. Right. Yeah, it's kind of a vague answer, but yeah, ultimately flavor and physio physiological ripeness with sugar and acid as, as a guideline. Right. 
I know that you guys are going through some changes, at least what we see nationally in three tier. I, we, we've we've all been working with Toussaint Sam and Les Voisins over the years, and I know that there, there, there's been a shift um, and some of these wines will start to get released. Can you talk about kind of what we would expect to see out in the marketplace? Certainly the Sonoma Coast wines, right? Chardonnay and Pinot, Rosé, and would there be anything else that we might be looking at down the road? Um, so we are also going to premiere our test marketing, I guess you could say, quote unquote, uh, uh, the white blend that we're mm -hmm. going to bottle uh, actually next week, uh, mid-April from 2022 vintage. Going to see how it does in California and a few other markets. And then hopefully something we can ex expand to a national you know, distribution. Uh, looking to have a white wine that set, sets itself apart from Chardonnay. We have a lot of Chardonnay in the company and just wanted to um, kind of have something different, go to market with something that's fresh, lively, it's complex and serious, but it's also just very fun and very smashable. So we're, we're blending this Daybreak White, which is, you know, anywhere from six to eight varietals in the blend. Super exciting. It's got Gewürz, it's got Riesling, Sauvignon Blanc, uh, Viognier, Chardonnay, the world's our oyster. We can put Moving forward, add some of our Chenin Blanc in there, pick pool, all sorts of things. But really just have a really like super exciting, lively, vivacious white blend that's great by the glass. Yeah. 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 Great. Well, I know that's certainly something we're all excited about. Um, even though it's in its infancy, we we always like having extra little things to to have fun with. So thanks for working on that project. Now, are you co-fermenting all of those? In some cases, yes, but because a lot of these harvest differently, uh, we harvest them separately. One interesting thing this year, uh, which we've never done before, and I don't know if it might be the first time it's ever been done, is the Gewurz and the Viognier harvested on the same day, and they were, the yields were so pitiful that we had to combine them together in the press to actually fill the press. So we had a, a Gewurz, Viognier, co-ferment, which it was pretty pretty wild. Aromatic, I bet. <laughs> it's pretty fun. Wow. So. And uh, doing that all in stainless, I assume? A mix of stainless and neutral, yeah. Okay. Kind of piece it together during harvest and then maybe start comboing things up as we get closer to the holidays. And the Sonoma Coast wine. So the Chardonnay, that fruit, I'm assuming, is a lot of tidal break vineyard or? Chardonnay, Sonoma Coast Chardonnay is based off of tidal break. Um, I like that blend to be predominantly West Sonoma coast. Mm -hmm. And also we'll, we'll source a little bit from the Bloomfield vineyard. We started getting Chardonnay nice. from that vineyard in 22. And yeah, like that will be the, the bulk of that blend moving forward. So. And tidal break for those that don't know, it's kind of just South of Annapolis, right? Pretty far out there. Yeah. So we have two excellent vineyards out there, tidal break and sea lift that are in that Annapolis sea ranch area. Nice little ridge line across across the along the Pacific coast, just about four and a half to five miles inland uh, at nice elevation, 12 to 1600 foot. Great UV uh, light, great sunshine, but also a nice cooling effect from the Pacific. So it's very ideal for Pinot and Chardonnay out there. And for the Sonoma Coast Pinot, is that, should I assume that's mainly sea lift or a little bit more sourcing on that one? Yep. So Sealift will make the foundation of that. So usually 60 to 80% of the blend, uh, maybe even more in some cases. The fruit out there is always so, to me, it just is so like juicy and inviting and 
you know, you get dark fruits and red fruits and pomegranate, great texture, super soft. So that should be exciting. And then I talk a little bit about how you make your Pinot. I think it's it's very kind of cool and interesting. You know, talking to Melanie Chester from Giant Steps, it sounded sort of familiar. And again, their whole thing was about retaining freshness in the wine. So how do you make the Pinots? You know, again, picking at a, a, a relatively lower bricks level, 22, in most cases that preserves great acidity, but also that's plenty of fruit development and flavor to make a fruit-driven Pinot Noir. Most of the time, uh, we de-stem fully, but we do play with some whole cluster lots. Um, everything is fermented in small open-top containers, but what we do not do is punch down. We actually pump over. Our fermenters have little screens in the bottom that can just send juice out the bottom. And really, we do like a light circulation almost. We keep that cap wet, but we're not going for a lot of cap manipulation, not going for max extraction. What I think contributes to the highly aromatic nature of our pinots is the fact that yes harvesting early but also going to tank whole berry and then mm -hmm. not doing a lot of cap manipulation we kind of retain whole berry status and they kind of break down slowly over the course of you know it's two weeks in tank so it's it's almost like this semi-carbonic effect i feel like our, our ferments always smell really incredible and very lifted very candy like uh, almost like Beaujolais Nouveau. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, I feel like that's what contributes to our style of wine, definitely. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I don't see it practiced that much. And so I think it's always worth talking about um, for producers like yourself to do it. Again, where you're, you are definitely seeking out a style of freshness, a style of expressing place, um, drinkability, those sorts of things. And it definitely comes through in the wine. So that's amazing. Uh, anything else you guys are working on that you might be fun for us to talk about? Um, you've mentioned Cabernet Franc a couple of times. I'm assuming that's more of a Loire Valley style than, say, Bordeaux. Yeah. So early on in my career, I started going to tasting groups with younger winemakers, and we, none of us had any money. And I guess in the early 2000s, uh, red wines from the Loire Valley were still undiscovered. So you could get great Cabernet Francs, um, you know, for under 30 bucks. Um and I just really took a liking to that that expression of Cab Franc. It wasn't what I expected from Napa Valley. Um, it was like more crunchy, more a little more angular, more vegetal in some cases. Um, I, I just loved that. They were just more rustic. And not that we're trying to copy that, but I, I've always just wanted to make a wine that sort of bridges that gap. So we found the Taylor Peak fruit uh, out above Bennett Valley a few years back. It's a vineyard that performs like Sonoma Coast, where it's windy, cool, good diurnal shift, um, but it's on crunchy volcanic soils that are on a very steep mountaintop. It can be tannic, but also fresh and lively. So it's like a lot of that lavender rose petal, but also just a lot of texture. And uh, yeah, it's kind of that, that bridge wine. Heck yeah, that sounds great. I'm going to have to figure a way to get a bottle of that. Another thing is I've just fallen in love with Grenache and maybe it's because I've made mm. Pinot for 20 whatever years that I just need a new muse and Grenache has just got me super excited. So we've obviously been working with the Brousseau Vineyard down in Monterey for Grenache, but we've also, uh, some of our Syrah vineyards, we've actually incorporated some Grenache and Mouved um, into the planting. So we're kind of workshopping the idea of making Grenache even more, have more of a spotlight in, in, in the roster someday. 
Yeah, so super exciting. Love. Yeah, I uh, love that cool. idea. Do you find, you talking to California winemakers and whatnot, they've, they've said that, you know, Grenache is great to work with, but you have to be a little bit more um, regimented in the vineyards. Is there anything unique about, you know, vineyard management you found with Grenache? Well, the clusters can be very monstrous, uh, mm-hmm. depending on the clone. Uh, so if you're in a marginal site where it's maybe cool, you definitely have to, you know, drop some fruit on drop occasion to to make sure that you, the stuff can get actually across the finish line. We're not going for maximum ripeness, so we kind of we're pretty lucky in that regard. You know, for better or for worse, we make them just like our pinots, so we're not again not going for a you know a big muscular style. We're just going for a real very floral expression with the Grenache, so we can get away with a few green berries and a cluster here and there. Yeah, that, I mean the Brusso one is so beautiful. I mean, just the aromatics on that thing alone. It's really incredible. Thank you. Anything else you'd like to to tell us about yourself or about the winery, things going on right now? Or I think we got a pretty good rundown on on what we're going to see in the marketplace and kind of your mantra and winemaking style. Any other yeah. tips for, for the team? Uh, just, you know, I think we got a lot of exciting things for the future. We're about to redevelop the property here you know, as we continue to improve our farming, uh, we're going to redevelop the property here at Copan, and we're going to plant the uh, fallow field, redevelop that. Uh, the wheels are turning in my head to kind of make this estate property the base for our um, white blend someday. So we're looking into planting some heat-resistant grape varietals that mm-hmm. are going to be farmed in a way that can hide from the sun a little bit. <laughs> this is a pretty warm spot where the, the, the winery is located. So we're thinking Vermentino, Verdeo, perhaps Grenache Blanc, you know, a few other things that, that are resistant to the heat, but are still delicious and, you know, complex. We'll see. We're kind of just finalizing the plan right now. What's going in the ground next year? It's like a, it's going to be a little hub of all things cool and exciting. And not that it already isn't. Lots of cool things on the horizon. We we appreciate you very much and the wines you you make for us to enjoy and, and help share with the rest of the world. And thank you again for your time today. Uh, everyone out there, thank you for listening. Again, uh, for Ryan Zipaltis, this is Nick Hetzel signing off. Uh, Bud Break Podcast Series.